it's hard because games also with differently wired kids could especially be very socially reinforcing. So it's not just about playing a game and having fun. It's about playing the game with their friends. It's about this is their social time. This is the time they're connecting with other people. And so it's, it's not quite the same as let's put your book down and go eat dinner. Welcome to the Tilt Parenting Podcast, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber, and today's guest is Dr. Rachel Cowart, an independent research consultant and author of the book, A Parent's Guide to Video Games, the essential guide to understanding how video games impact your child's physical, social, and psychological well-being. I know that video games are a big part of many of our differently wired kids' lives, and I also know there's a lot of concern in our community about how much is too much, what effect violent games have on our kids, what constitutes video game addiction, and much more. Rachel earned her PhD in psychology from the University of York and centered her research on video games. And as a gamer and mother herself, she definitely knows her stuff. In today's episode, Rachel and I will look at what the research has to say about the impact of video games in our kids' lives, bust some myths about the potential harms and benefits of gaming for kids, and answer questions posed by many of you in the Tilt Parenting Facebook page. We covered a lot in what turned out to be a very lively conversation about gaming. So whether your child is into Minecraft, Clash of Clans, Slime Rancher, Heyday, or any other online games, I guarantee you'll take away some nuggets from today's episode. Before we get started, I wanted to quickly invite you to join over 600 other parents and take part in our free virtual Differently Wired 7-Day Challenge. Every day for seven days, you'll get a short video delivered to your inbox featuring a practical shift you can make in your world to help you have a more positive and optimistic experience in parenting your unique kiddo. You'll also be invited to join a private Facebook group with other parents who've participated in the challenge. We've heard from parents that the challenge has made an immediate difference in their day-to-day life, which is fantastic because that's exactly why we created it. Sign up and get started right away at tiltparenting.com slash seven day. And now I'll get on with the show. Hey, Rachel, welcome to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. Hi, Debbie. Thanks for having me. I shared on the Facebook page that I was having a video game expert on the show. And you know, does anyone have any questions for me? And I do this sometimes when I'm bringing on a guest that I think the audience would be particularly interested in, but I usually get like one or two questions. And I checked back in last night, and I had a ton of questions. (laughs) So we're, we're gonna see what we can get through today. But I'm really excited to be bringing this conversation because so many differently wired kids are really into gaming, and video games. And I think there's a lot of misinformation out there, and a lot of concerns and questions. So I'm excited for you to kind of straighten things out for us. All right, let's do it. Let's do it. So just as a way to get started, you are someone who's dedicated your career to studying video games and gamers who love them. So can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm so curious to know how you got into this and why this is the area that you've chosen to focus on through your work. Yeah, well, I'm a research psychologist. That's kind of the title I would adopt, I suppose, (laughs) and a gamer and a parent based in Austin, Texas. 
I have a PhD in psychology from the University of York and a master's in counseling psychology from Santa Clara University. And my interest really grew out of my master's program because with the master's in counseling psychology, you're required to do a clinical internship. So I was doing individual therapy and family therapy and seeing a lot of parents come in with concerns about their children playing video games. Now, this was 2006 to 2008, which was when World of Warcraft was super popular, which I'm sure many parents have heard of that are Mm -hmm. listening. (laughs) And after about the third, fourth parenting couple, I was like, okay, I play a lot of World of Warcraft. I'm starting to be concerned. Should I be concerned that something negative is happening because I'm playing these games? But at the time, you know, game studies was not a field of research. There was very little information for me to pass along to parents. And so I thought this is something that I could research. This is something I'm interested in, even if for selfish reasons, (laughs) because I was playing a lot of video games. Um, And that's really how my interest started way back in 2006. Wow. So my husband is a gamer and I remember the World of Warcraft years. <laughs> yeah, it, it was it was a it was a rough time, actually, because we were had a pretty young son, you know, Asher was born in 2004. And there was a lot of like gaming happening behind closed doors. And I'm like, hey, dude, we have this kid, like, I need a little break, you know, but it was a Yeah, I don't know. And we'll talk about addiction. I thought it was a pretty addictive (laughs) game. But um, I will be curious to hear your take on that. So let's start with maybe what some of the most common concerns are that you typically hear from parents about video games. I know that I have some of my own, but I'm curious to know what are the things that typically come up for you? Violence is definitely number one. The number one question you get is, if my child plays violent video games, will they become violent? That's by far the number one question. Okay. Um, Addiction, questions about addiction. Um, How do I know if my child is addicted to video games? Should I be concerned? And then there's also a lot of questions about online gaming and making friends online and what parents should be aware of in terms of their children making friends online. Mm. Those are definitely the top three, I would okay. say. Okay. Well, I think we should go through them then. Let's, All right. <laughs> and, and, and in fact, in when I posted on Facebook about, you know, what people wanted to hear from violent games, specifically first-person shooter games, and I know that's not the only kind of, you know, violence that happens in video games, but a lot of people had that question, like, what does that mean for kids and does it impact them? So what's your answer? Yeah. Okay. So there's a short answer and a long answer. Uh, I'll try to give the short-ish answer. So if you look at the research, there are literally thousands of studies in this area. You will find that there are a handful of studies, a relatively small percentage of studies that have found slight increases in aggressive outcomes following exposure to violent video gameplay. Now, what this means is they bring someone into a lab, they give them some measure of aggression, they have them play 15 minutes of some kind of violent game, and then they give them the same measure of aggression afterwards, and they find that the difference between before and after, there's a slight increase. Now, that being said, that is not the same at all as saying that this person is going to act aggressively or violently in any sort of non-isolated context, Mm -hmm. like is in the laboratory. So that's the first distinction to make. The second is these effects are incredibly small and short term. So if you look at the bigger studies that look at different factors like age, previous exposure to violence, 
uh, peer delinquency, mental health, all of these aspects of an individual are far more influential than any media effect, violent TV, violent video games, violent movies, any of those. Mm -hmm. So short answer Mm -hmm. (laughs) is you don't need to be concerned that only playing violent video games is not going to have any sort of significant effect on your child's tendency to be aggressive or commit violent crime. Okay. And do you have suggestions about, you know, guidelines in terms of what kind of games might be more appropriate than others? I know there are some rating systems for games, and I I actually, um, I don't know what those rating systems are. I'm sure that you do. Yes. (laughs) So tell us about kind of what's appropriate at what, what age. Yeah, so uh, in America, it's the uh, Entertainment Software Ratings Board, the ESRB. In Europe, I think it's the PEGI, PEGI, um, but they're all very similar. And they give age ratings, so different age groups like 18 and older or, or young childhood. And they also have content ratings. So even if your child meets an age rating, you're going to want to look at the content placards on the back of the game because it'll tell you if it has suggestive themes or if it's violent or if it's got explicit language, and it gives you a little more insight into what exactly the content is of these games. So I think if you just pay attention to those, you'll have a much better idea of what kind of games your children are playing and what they're being exposed to. And then what about that first person shooter specifically? And, you know, for listeners who aren't aware of what that means, that's where and and correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that's where you as the, the player, you are the subject of the game and your have a gun is what you see, Mm -hmm. right? And that's what you're interacting with. So that's one of those things that I know, a lot of parents are think there's a certain age where that's more appropriate, or you know, they're too young to be playing a first person shooter. Do you have an opinion about that? Well, there's a, a few comments about that. The first is most of those games are rated for older children. So you're not gonna not that I can even think of, find a, a first-person shooter that is given an age rating for a young child. But secondly, and this kind of goes into one of the questions you had on Facebook about desensitization effects when you play these kinds of games. Mm-hmm. So our brains are really great at differentiating between what is real and what is not. For instance, if you are watching Rambo, you might think it's a bit violent, but if the Rambo scenes were happening in front of you, right, you, you would feel a lot different because <laughs> mm-hmm. we know what's real and what's not. So even when your children are playing these games, of course, follow the age ratings, but you can also have a bit of peace of mind that it's very clear in our brains that this is not real. What I'm doing is not real. This is a game. This is not reality. I'm not actually killing people, you know? Mm-hmm. And another question related to that. Do you know what it is about shooting games that appeals to kids so much? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just about it being fast paced and, and, you know, lots of different, lots of changes in the environment. There's lots of colors, there's lots of action, there's lots of noise. And it's really interesting because these kinds of games, these first person shooters are the ones that get all the bad press, right? When you talk about violence in video games, it's always, oh, the first person shooters But when you get into the research about games and learning, and when you start hearing about, oh, well, it can teach you cognitive skills, or it can teach you mental rotation skills, and video games are great. These are the same games. They're just being framed as action games instead of first-person shooter games. Mm -hmm. So some of it really just depends on how you're framing, you know, the content. Yeah. And I, you know, I definitely think that when certain things happen in the news, right, then all of a sudden, if, for example, an act of violence committed by a young person, and then 
we start learning, well, were they influenced by this? You know, it, it creates this culture of fear and then maybe perpetuating this idea that these are largely in- influential. But what you're saying is that the research doesn't really back that up. Correct. And that is definitely the conclusion that is made anytime something horrible happens, which, you know, we all want answers. And so it's not too unreasonable to think we all want something to blame. There is a nice graph in the book on violence that shows how the consumption of violent video games has exponentially increased over the last 20 years. And this has coincided with a steady decrease in youth violence. Hmm. So if the argument is that playing violent video games has a great influence on us, especially teenagers, because they have all the time in the world to play these kinds of games and are very interested in these kinds of games, then you think you would see both increasing, but that's not what you see. Right. And for listeners, I mentioned this in the introduction, but the book that Rachel's referring to is her book, A Parent's Guide to Video Games, The Essential Guide to Understanding How Video Games Impact Your Child's Physical, Social, and Psychological Well-Being. It's a great book. I even had Asher read the book, and he really enjoyed it. He is a gamer, (laughs) so he was all over it. And I'll make sure there's a link to this in the show notes so you can check it out. All right, so I think we may come back to violence, but I think that that covered a lot of the questions that we had about that. I personally am more interested in the addiction piece. So, you know, I know that there is a difference between addiction and engagement. And you talk about that in your book. Could you explain what that is? And maybe just give us a definition for addiction in the context of video games? Sure. So put the most simple way. Um, A video game addiction is not present until the player has lost all control over their playing. And it has begun to have a detrimental effect on all aspects of their life. So this means playing games are negatively impacting their education, their work, their friendships, their physical health, their psychological well-being for an extended period of time. Now, it's hard to give exact criteria for addiction because it's not actually formally recognized yet by the American Psychiatric Association. It's um, currently being treated as a condition that requires future research, more research to determine if it should be classified as an official disorder. That being said, several criteria have been proposed, and these are largely based off of the diagnosis of a gambling addiction, Mm -hmm. which is currently the only other behavioral addiction recognized by the APA. So this are things like withdrawal symptoms, you know, tolerance, conflicts, their suffering, interpersonal, occupational, psychological consequences due to play. And again, over a three to six month period. So Engagement, a lot of times parents say, oh, my child played video games all of spring break. Okay, well, what happened after spring break? Oh, well, then they didn't have any more time to play and they went back to school and everything went back to normal. Okay, well, then (laughs) they were just having a really fun two weeks. Like, Mm -hmm. you don't have to be too concerned. It's more about losing control and having severe consequences due to their play. Okay, that totally makes sense. And I'm thinking about specifically kids who really struggle with when it's time for their screen time, their gaming for that day to be over. That for us, you know, and I think this is common for most children, but especially with some differently wired kids who can be really deeply immersed in what they're doing. So not necessarily that transition, because I do want to talk about that as well, kind of what happens after the gaming. But when some kids, and this happens with Asher sometimes, are so involved in what they're doing that it really becomes next to impossible to get them to disengage and they can 
be really upset about doing that. You know, yeah. you're really putting them out. And this is, you know, my yeah. time. And, and it does take a toll on a family because it seems like in those moments that the game is the priority and everything else, you know, isn't as important. Yeah, it's hard because games also with differently wired kids could especially be very socially reinforcing. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about playing a game and having fun. It's about playing the game with their friends. It's about this is their social time. This is the time they're connecting with other people. And so it's, it's not quite the same as let's put your book down and go eat dinner. You know, right. <laughs> so it can, yeah. it, they have a lot more of a pull in these games and they're more invested. They're emotionally invested. They're socially invested. Their time is invested. So in that sense, it's slightly different from other activities. And I think that's part of what contributes to it being so difficult and the kids being so connected to being engaged in these spaces. So in our house these days, Darren and I have been working together to up-level our nutrition and healthy lifestyle habits. Maybe it's our age, our changing bodies, my shifting hormones, whatever the reason, I'm here for it. And that's why I'm loving Green Chef, a meal company that makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. Green Chef offers gut-friendly recipes each week and is committed to providing a holistic approach to nutrition by offering meals that contribute to the overall well-being of your entire body. Darren and I are particularly big fans of their nutrient-dense, science-backed gut and brain health recipes, developed in partnership with registered dietitians that improve digestion, reduce bloat, and also boost energy and immunity. This week's favorites, turkey, black bean, and sweet potato chili, and the Baja chicken bowls with mango salsa. I mean, don't those sound delicious? But if that's not your thing, you can choose from a variety of customized meals to suit your lifestyles with preferences like keto, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, gluten-free, and protein-packed. Whatever you choose, you'll get farm-fresh ingredients, organic whole fruits and veggies, and premium proteins, along with chef-crafted, nutritionist-approved recipes delivered straight to your door. Go to greenchef.com slash 60tilt and use code 60tilt to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's 60% off plus 20% off your next two months when you use the code 60TILT at greenchef.com slash 60TILT. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body. And so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. 
That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. So, but that wouldn't qualify as addiction. That is just highly engaged. And do you have thoughts about how to disengage them in a way? I know that you're a gamer, so I don't know. Do you have kind of (laughs) thoughts on how, how parents who are dealing with this on a regular basis can ease that transition? Yeah, I mean, the best advice I can give is treating it as any other kind of activity that they would be very invested in. So for instance, if I was playing, you know, basketball in my driveway with my neighborhood friends, and my parents would come out and be like, all right, you know, 30 minutes, and then we got to go. I mean, I think I would equally scoff at the idea of coming inside in 30 minutes, I'm having fun with my friends, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just about setting limits, making sure that children know, you know, okay, at six o'clock, we're gonna have to eat dinner or, you know, oh, 30 minutes and we have to, you know, get off. And it's still going to probably be a struggle. But at least they're mindful of the limits that are being set. So they can sort of mentally prepare like, okay, in 30 minutes, my mom's going to come back in here and yell at me. (laughs) I better, you know, wrap things up and try to get off. Yeah. And for listeners, Asher and I actually did an episode on screen time and kind of what our policies are around them, which quite honestly, are always changing and evolving because we'll find a strategy that works and it'll work for a while. And then we realize "Hmm, this is not working anymore. We need to come up with something new. So I'll leave that in the show notes as well if you want to check it out. But this is something we definitely are always trying to figure out. And I see such a payoff with the games that he's playing and the ways that he's engaging and learning and developing really cool skills. So I love the fact that he is playing them. I wouldn't want to say don't do it, but it's always in the back of my mind. And so actually, before we move on from addiction, what if there are parents out there who heard your definition of addiction and are like, yeah, that's actually what's going on with us? What do they do? What's the step to getting a child unaddicted to video games? Yeah, it's difficult now because it's not formally a diagnosis by the APA. So there are not too many resources out there. Um, the advice I would give parents is go seek a mental health professional, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, maybe someone who specializes in behavioral addictions, which at this point is going to be gambling. That's the only one, as I mentioned, formally recognized. And that will set you on the right path in terms of what steps should I take to try and treat this and try and address this, which is usually some form of cognitive behavioral therapy. The therapist will know. (laughs) The therapist will know what strategies to take, but um, that's what I would suggest. Okay, that's great. Thank you. So let's move on to the third of the concerns that you mentioned that parents most commonly have, and that is the social aspect of online gaming. Can you say more about that, specifically what parents are worried about and what your experience has been? Well, When I mention the social aspect of gaming, I'm not so much talking about like stranger danger and those aspects. There's a lot of resources online for that. And that is definitely a concern. But I'm more addressing how a lot of people have this idea that the friends you meet online and the friends you meet through online gaming are somehow less valuable or less real Mm. friendships than the people you meet at school or at work or in the neighborhood. Okay. I think that this dichotomy, especially this day and age, I mean, it's not so black and white. We take our friends from school and we play games with them. We meet people online in games and then, oh, we go to the same school and then you take them offline. It's really kind of fluid this day. It's not so much that I'm only playing with strangers that I'll never never see in, in other contexts. So that's the first point. The second point would be that when you talk to people who play online, you find that 
they do not consider online friends to be any less valuable than their friends that they have at school or at work. I mean, in fact, a lot of them, I think it's 75% of the gamers polled in, in a recent study said that they share sensitive information with their online friends before they share it with their friends at school or their families. So they can really be close, you know, sources of social support, of emotional support, and aren't necessarily kind of these subpar fake friends that, you know, have no value. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking of Asher is really involved with this game Kerbal Space Program. Oh, it's a great game. Yeah, oh, yeah. he <laughs> loves that game. And he is really engaged in the online forums. And he, I've noticed he spends a lot of time on the forums, helping other people solve problems. And he mm-hmm. it's almost like become this thing that he almost does his Good Samaritan act for the day. And it makes <laughs> him feel really good. And that's something I've been really supporting of like that you're a really good member of the community. I love that you're contributing this way and just trying to to reinforce that because I it gives him a chance to be helpful where he really can't do that in his real life in that way with peers who will so value what he's sharing with them. So can you talk about maybe some of the other social benefits that you've seen from kids being involved with online gaming? Yeah, well, that one, that's a great one. And the research, they talk a lot about interacting with people that you wouldn't necessarily interact with and being able to be a leader and being able to be helpful. Um, And that's a perfect example of it. Another example would be directly related to leadership skills. So these are the games like World of Warcraft, where you lead groups. And this allows children, I mean, 12, 13, 14-year-olds can lead groups of (laughs) 30-year-olds to (laughs) success, you know. And this is something they would never experience in real life or have the opportunity to do and and gain a sense of self-efficacy and, and, you know, be able to interact with different adults from all over the world. In more general terms, you know, video games have also kind of been called emotional self-medication. So this is kind of just as a general benefit of playing online, you can achieve sense of success, achievement, solving problems, social appreciation. So Asher probably, you know, gets kudos for helping people Mm -hmm. with the game and feels appreciated for spending time to help other individuals. And all of these are great social benefits. And they're all real, right? I mean, you talked about the boost of confidence. If you're in World of Warcraft, and you're leading these adults, like, the confidence that you're experiencing doing that is just as genuine as confidence you would have from some experience in the real world. Absolutely. And there's also research to suggest that the skills that you're learning doing that in these games, you take into the real world. So you take that confidence. Oh, well, I've led groups online. I can definitely lead groups in my classroom. I've led adults. I can lead Mm. my peers. So yeah. You are a really good advocate for video games. I just have to say, I'm, I can already tell my attitude is shifting. And I'm not anti-video game at all. Like I really, my husband's a gamer and Asher is as well. So it's not something I'm opposed to, but I definitely keep my eye on it. And, yeah. uh, but it's, it's, this is really making me think differently about some things, which is, it's not easy to do for me. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying don't have any concerns, but I think that they get such a bad rap. And when you really look at the science behind what we know about video games as tools and what they can offer us, yeah, opinions begin to shift. Because this, this is not something you usually hear about when you hear about video games. 
So I'm just going to ask, you said, I'm not saying you shouldn't have any concerns. If, you know, you're a parent, what are the kinds of things that you will be, I don't know how old your children are, maybe you could tell us that. And what are things that you'll be or you are on top of her? She's two. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) so you're not there yet. (laughs) But she does play, she does play games on the iPad. She definitely has already gotten to that point. You know, we're a Daniel Tiger PBS kind of family. Awesome. But, you know, concerns in terms of balance, you know, she really likes she really likes playing games on the iPad, but I don't let her sit and only play games on the iPad. I think it's about having diversity of experiences. It's about doing more than just being a bit sedentary. So Mm -hmm. games are great. They're an aspect of her life. I'm sure they will always be. I always played video games. My husband somehow has more free time than me and tends to play a lot of video games as well. Um, <laughs> so I'm sure it's something that will always be in our lives. But I think that it just needs to be treated as something, one of many activities that takes place in the house. And also, you know, it is relatively sedentary activity. You know, games are becoming slightly more active. You know, Pokemon Go, for instance, has gotten people, you know, out into the world walking around and playing those kinds of geolocation games. But we want to make sure that we're not just only having our children do one activity and and a stationary one at that. Right. That leads me to a question. I don't know if I put it on our list of topics, but I'm sure you can speak to it. Asher has been pushing hard for virtual reality for his birthday. He has a whole plan of how he's going to pay for this and we'll cover this. And, you know, and I said, you know, I need to do a little more research on this, especially for kids on the spectrum and, you know, I and kids with ADHD. I don't know what research exists at all for virtual reality and its implications. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, none. No research. (laughs) It's it's way too new, although it is happening. I know many labs who have now acquired like Oculus Rifts and they are doing studies now. If I had to make a guess, I think it would be very similar to what we see Uh, and video game research. I mean, again, our minds will be able to differentiate between real and not real, even though it is a more immersive technology. My concern is getting sick. Have you put one of those on? Oh, I'm so (laughs) sick. (laughs) Yes, I can see that. Uh, Motion sickness, right? Yeah. Yeah. If we end up going that route, we'll do a follow-up episode and see what has happened in our world. Yeah. So you say that video games are emerging as promising tools to help improve attention and potentially reduce impulsivity for kids with ADHD. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, this is really cool. Um, This is really a new line of research. So they're only really a small handful of studies. But what they're finding is that rather than kind of the fast paced nature of video games exacerbating attention problems, which is usually the concern. The way that video games, like the elements in video games, the fast rewards, the novel experiences, they're actually very good at honing attention and have found to outperform more traditional treatment plans with children with ADD where you try to reduce inattention and ability. Hmm. That came out clunky, but I think it made sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, so more research needs to be done before it's going to be part of any kind of treatment plan, but it is really promising. In terms of kind of differently wired kids in general, you know, our audiences comprised of parents who are raising kids who have a lot of kids with ADHD, maybe uh, sensory processing issues, speed processing issues, high functioning autism, and these types of neuro differences. Are there any in your experience, special considerations for that we should be aware of uh, as we 
support our kids in engaging safely in online games? Yeah, there is some evidence to suggest that children on the autistic spectrum tend to be more interested in video games than children who are not. And I think that this is because children on the spectrum tend to have higher levels of social anxiety and maybe struggle with traditional social situations. And then this goes back to the social freedoms that online gaming can provide. So I think if you have a differently wired child and you're finding that it's exceedingly difficult to pull them away from their games, especially their online games, you might need to consider the social benefits that they're also gaining from gaming. It might not just be about why is my child so interested in playing this game? It might be this is their social refuge. This is where they feel socially comfortable. Mm-hmm. This is they're attaining success in, in spaces that are safe versus in their offline world, they may not be able to attain the same sense of success and achievement. Right. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay. I've gone through my questions and (laughs) we've actually covered quite a few of the things that I've heard from parents, but there are a couple other things I would love to get your response on. So this one is kind of the golden question and I bet you get asked it all the time is 
there, in your opinion, is there a quote unquote healthy amount of time to spend playing video games? Like what kind of limits do you recommend or is that a very individual decision? Yeah, I think it's an individual decision. Um, the American Pediatric Association, so for really young children, I think under the age of six, they say no more than two hours of screen time a day. But honestly, that's kind of just an arbitrary number just to, I mean, you have screens when you're Skyping with grandmas at the same as, you know, playing Daniel Tiger on the iPad. So again, it just comes down to balance. Video games should be a fun thing that they do, but not the only thing that they ever do. Right. It seems to be one of those issues that is so divisive among parenting communities. You know, we, we don't have super strict limits. We tried that for a while. And it was really creating a lot of stress in our family and just the struggles and the battles and the warnings and the timer. I mean, it was really not a good thing going on here. And so we eased up on that, but we set guidelines instead about our expectations for balance and other activities and moving and breaks and all of these things. And that's that's worked pretty well. And then we'll meet another family out and they're like, oh, yeah, my child has, you know, gets an hour a week of free time on their computer. And I'm like, (laughs) Asher, did you hear that? Do you know how lucky you are? But it is one of those issues that there's such a divide. And I think, you know, maybe it's those kind of shaming articles that go viral on Facebook or get shared in different parenting groups. So a couple hours a day is not, in your opinion, something to be super concerned about as long as they're engaging in other activities as well. And they have balance. Right. I mean, if they were, you know, when I was a kid, I watched more than two hours of TV a day for sure. Yeah. yeah. And then that could, the same concern wasn't there. I think that and I'm not exactly sure why the concern is so strong about video games, except for the fact that they get such negative press mm-hmm. and parents seem very focused on the potential negative influences they may be having because they never hear about the potential positive influences they may be having. So yeah, the shaming is real. I mean, I have friends with two-year-olds who are like, oh, my child is never on the iPad and and it makes everyone feel bad. And I don't know why it makes us feel bad. It shouldn't make us feel bad. Everyone's different. (laughs) Yes, parenting should be a guilt and shame-free venture, but unfortunately it is not. But we're trying to change that here. So someone wanted to know if there are any games that you know of that improve a person's brain processing speed. So a lot of our kids do have a uh, slow processing disorder. And she mm-hmm. specifically says her son loves to play Rhythm Heaven Fever. I'm not familiar with that game, but it's an old Wii game. And she feels like she sees some benefits. But are there any studies about processing speed being enhanced through gameplay? Yeah, there's evidence that a range of processing skills like hand-eye coordination, attention span, all of those kind of skills that would be clustered under cognitive skills tend to be improved with games that have fast paced action. I'm not familiar with that game. It sounds like, sounds fast (laughs) to me, Um, but games that require quick reaction times, games that have a lot of stimulation, these tend to be like the first person type shooter games, but also, you know, action adventure type games. That's kind of the genre that you would want to focus on if you're looking to improve cognitive skills of various kinds. Okay, great. So one of the questions I got on the Facebook page was, what is it about Minecraft that kids love so much? This is a parent who has a six-year-old boy with ADHD who loves it. And I will just say, 
anecdotally here, you know, Asher's not doing so much Minecraft, but actually my husband is. My husband is a modder mm. and he's made some mods for Minecraft in conjunction with my son, but it is definitely a fascinating game world community and the potential, in my opinion, is so great. But what do you have to say about Minecraft? Yeah, I mean, if if we knew the underlying um, element, we'd all be rich because we can make another one. Because <laughs> Minecraft is really like a, a world of its own. I mean, it's wild. I think a lot of it is because it's a sandbox game. So this is one of the genres of video games. There are others. I can't think of them off the top of my head. But what this means is the world is open and you can interact with pretty much anything. So every day is new and novel. You can experiment. You can innovate. No two days are ever the same. And with Minecraft, you also have the online element. So you can see what your friends are making. You can Your friends can see what you're making. And I think really all of these elements together is what makes Minecraft such a social phenomenon. I mean, it's not even that big of a budget of a game, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's still, people love it so much. And I think it's just the innovation of it all. You can mm. do anything. You can make anything. Yeah, I remember when Asher was probably four or something, a neighbor's son was really into it. He was probably 13 at the time. And he's like, I think Asher would be into this. And I was like, really? I totally do not get it. Like I watched right? him play for a while. And I was like, <laughs> I have no clue what you're doing or why this is interesting. And, you know, and now I kind of get it. Like I understand what recipes, like I know a lot actually about Minecraft for someone who's <laughs> never played it. Yeah, it is definitely, I don't see it going anywhere. And it's so interesting yeah. that, it's just interesting, you know, as I watch parents with younger kids then kind of enter the world of Minecraft, and it does become this kind of huge part of their lives for a couple of years, at least. Yeah. But, you know, on the bright side, Minecraft has a lot to teach our children about, you know, engineering and mm -hmm. innovation. Yeah. And that in terms of learning games, that's a pretty good one. Yes, definitely. One of the games, before I get back to listener questions, as you were talking, I was reminded of this game that also nearly brought our family down. <laughs> and that is this game called Clash of Clans. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, with Asher, that is the one and only time that we had to, Darren and I had to sit him down and say, this game is no longer a part of our world because, you know, it has that it's a persistent, is it called a persistent world? Is that yes. the, the technical term? So he would leave, you know, he'd come home from school and he would turn on the game to find that someone had destroyed this or this had happened. Yes. And oh my gosh, the anxiety yes. <laughs> that that game created for us. Do you have any thoughts about persistent world games? Yeah, I mean, I wanted to divorce my husband when he played that game. I, w I had a similar conversation. I was like, you have to stop. I cannot deal with this. That's also, um, we were talking earlier about World of Warcraft. World of Warcraft is also a persistent game. So these kinds of games, the worlds change when you are not playing them. So that makes it the appeal even more because you're at school and you know that things are changing. Mm -hmm. So you have to go home and say, oh, no, what's changed while I was gone? I'm, it relates to the fear of missing out phenomenon. What did I miss? what has happened. Oh, those games are have a very strong draw. Yeah, and they're so popular. It's that is the that is one of the games that actually, you know, Asher will meet new friends and they'll be they'll all be playing Clash of Clans and he'll say, Yep, I'm not playing I don't play that game. Like he actually agreed with our decision, even though at the time he was furious with us for yeah. making it, he was kind of grateful to be released from that daily torture. Yeah, because it is it, it's funny because World of Warcraft too, it does get to a point where it's not so much fun as it's more you feel like you just need to continue playing it. 
like, oh, I have to get on and do this because it's Tuesday and on Tuesday this happens and X, Y, and Z. So those kinds of games are, are more socially rewarding and they are far more appealing, maybe. But yeah, Clash of Clans, I really, I wanted to kill my husband. I was so <laughs> mad when he played that game. <laughs> well, I imagine too, if there are kids, you know, with anxiety, that those are the kinds of games that they might want to avoid, right? Because they potentially could trigger, you know, more anxiety in their day-to-day life. That's a good point. Yeah, exactly. And again, with the fear of missing out with, oh, if I don't get on at six, I'm going to miss, you know, what's happening, what we do every Tuesday at six or whatever it might be. Definitely, I think that can cause some anxiety. Yeah. Okay, here's a question. And I'm conscious of the time. So we'll we'll wrap up after I get a few recommendations from you. One of the and I'm just going to read this. Um, I'd love some recommendations for games for children like my 13 year old son who loves games that are about exploration. And they're not timed. And they're not reward based. So he loves Minecraft. Mm-hmm. He loves Subnautica. That's also a game that Asher really loves. And Scrap Mechanic. But they very much rest on building things or passively watching other people's builds. Mm-hmm. And she wants him to be able to be active within the game without that meaning just quote, bashing things. Do you have any suggestions? Right. <laughs> you mentioned Kerbal Space Program. I think that mm. would be a great suggestion. Yeah. You know, my daughters too. My suggestions tend to be, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. For two-year-olds. Um, I think that Kerbal Space Program would be a great one. That would be a great one. Yeah. And for listeners who aren't familiar, I should do an episode on that. Asher will talk for hours about it. But it's uh, it is basically you are in charge of a space program. And there's a lot of real physics involved in engineering and you're designing things. And it is a really cool kind of challenging. It's challenging. He actually, when he was about 10 or 11, tried to play it and was getting frustrated because it is pretty difficult. But now that is his... That is his world. So yeah, that's a good one. I'll leave links yeah. for, for the games as well that we've mentioned in the show notes. Any other? Oh, here's a good one. Recommendations for kids who want to build their own games. Do you have any thoughts about either games that have communities where kids can design mods or be involved in creating or if kids actually have an idea for a game themselves? Yeah, so I did see this question and I didn't have any recommendations. So I turned to my community and I was like, hey, guys, (laughs) do you know any? And there's two that seem to stand out in terms of good resources to help kids make games. The first was the Wonder Workshop Dash Robot, Hmm. which looks very cool. And that is actually the one I found that was for the youngest kids. So that's age six and up. Um, and it's kind of like this robot and it's got buttons. I don't know exactly how it works, but it looks really cool. And parents are like, my kids love it. It's a big mm, hit. Cool. And the second was Scratch, mm-hmm. which is a free software tool that comes from the MIT Media Lab. This is for a bit older children. They say eight to 16. And I think that helps them. It's a software that helps them produce their own games. Right. Yeah. And there are so many camps, you know, so many communities yes. are having technology camps these days. And there, you know, people building their own server on Minecraft is one way to learn more about Minecrafting or the Minecraft community and how to do that back end work. And and I will just say too that Asher is really into 3D modeling right now and using mm-hmm. Blender, which is another way to be creative and create things that he's inspired to do through his games or even making he makes things for the mods that my husband is working on. So there are so many possibilities. I think that's one of the greatest parts about video gaming right now is there are so many different ways to bring your own creativity to it. If you, yes. if you, if you're 
so inclined. And there's so many great tutorials, like it's really the Wild West in some ways, but there can be so much self taught education that's happening. I think that's really cool. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I learned yesterday that there is a Girl Scout badge for making video games now. They did not have that when I was a Girl Scout. So, yeah, it's very cool. (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. Awesome. Well, listen, I think this has been fascinating. I got a few of my own personal questions in there. So uh, that was great for me. (laughs) And hopefully our listeners got a lot out of this. I have a feeling they're will be a lot of feedback on this episode. So perhaps down the road, we can have you back on for a follow-up conversation. But I'm just grateful that you're doing this research. I think it's so important that parents have access to good information and kind of level-headed, rational (laughs) things to think about when we're considering something that can feel kind of mired in myth and some insecurity that we're screwing our kids up. So I really appreciate you stopping by and talking with us today. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. It's been great. You've been listening to the Till Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, including links to Rachel's website and her book, as well as the rest of the resources we discussed, visit tillparenting.com slash session 68. And before I say goodbye, I wanted to give a quick shout out to Kim Teppo and Renee Stollery, two of our newest supporters who are helping to cover the production costs for the podcast through our Patreon campaign. Thanks to the help of listeners like you, we're now able to outsource our final post-production costs, which is fantastic and greatly appreciated as producing a weekly podcast is more than a little time consuming. If you like what we're doing here at the podcast and you'd like to help us reach our goal of covering all the production costs, please support us on Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash tiltparenting to learn more. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash tiltparenting. And lastly, if you like what you heard on today's show and you haven't already done so, please consider subscribing to our podcast on iTunes or leaving a review. Both things help our podcast get more visibility. Thanks again for listening. For more information on Till Parenting, visit www.tillparenting.com. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a no guilt mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Guilt Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows.